0: Spy Cops Info Podcast. A series on the secret undercover political police who spied on over a thousand campaign groups since 1968. Hashtag Spy Cops Pod. Episode 16, Kate Wilson and the IPT, Part 2. You can find Part 1 on Episode 6.
1: This is the second a series of podcasts about Kate Wilson's case before the Investigatory Powers Tribunal, a human rights case stemming from the discovery of undercover police officers sent to spy on environmental and social justice movements. The uh, previous podcast was just after the hearings finished and focused, if that's the right word, on initial reactions and thoughts about what took place during the hearing. In this episode we'll attempt to provide a more coherent potted history of the process and how your claim began and evolved this goes back a long time let's go back to basics
2: we were a group of eight women and some of us had relationships that took place after 2000 2000 is when the human rights act was enacted so the original claim of the eight women, three of us brought claims not only in the civil court but also under the Human Rights Act. And we weren't aware of this at the time, but it turned out that when the Human Rights Act was enacted they also created a tribunal called the Investigatory Powers Tribunal. The IPT has all kinds of powers to keep things secret. And the police turned around and said, we don't want any of these human rights claims being heard in open court. And we want them all to go to the Investigatory Powers Tribunal. It was ultimately ruled that the civil claim parts of our claim would go to the High Court. None of them did come to court because the police settled those claims out of court but that the human rights claims would go to the Investigatory Powers Tribunal. So that's how I ended up there.
1: In uh, 2015, the police issued their apology to some of the claimants in the civil case and settled out of court. That uh, settlement didn't apply to you.
2: A legal weirdity about the way that I settled my civil claim compared to how the other people who were bringing cases who had human rights claims and civil claims settled their claims meant that when my civil claim was settled, the human rights claim remained live.
1: What did you know of this uh, IPT and what were your expectations?
2: Back in 2011, 2012, when we were filing the claim, all that we knew was that almost all hearings take place in secret. Over 99% of the cases that had been brought, they had found in favour of the government. We had no desire whatsoever to end up in the Investigatory Powers Tribunal. That was what we knew then. In the intervening years, while the civil claims were going on, Privacy International and a number of other organisations brought cases in the Investigatory Powers Tribunal. The Investigatory Powers Tribunal, found in their favour on a number of issues which changed our attitude a little bit towards taking the case there when it came to it in 2017 whether we wanted to go ahead with the human rights claims we did
1: so by now i think we're in 2017 a lot had gone on in the previous six years a lot of new discoveries about the spy cops how did that affect how your case would now proceed
2: It made a massive difference. So when I first brought the claim in 2011, it was very much about Mark. Gradually, in the years after, we started to find out a lot of the political context. There were two specific police units only spying on political groups. And that it was not about any kind of criminal investigation, but it was a question of gathering intelligence on political dissent. Theresa May had declared the public inquiry into undercover policing and the full scope and extent of spy cops operations was a lot clearer and other people that I knew personally had been cops. So when it came to reopening the human rights claim, the whole terms of the claim for me had changed the particulars of claim that we ended up filing were not just about the sexual relationship that I had with Mark. They were also about the length of time and the sheer number of undercover police officers that I had come into contact with during the course of my political activism and the systemic aspects systematic spying on people for their political beliefs and sexist abuse of women. Because, of course, I'm not the only woman and it's not even just the eight women who brought the case. There are 27 women who are core participants in the public inquiry because of relationships that they had with undercover police.
1: Okay, without getting too bogged down in detail, can you tell us about your experience of the process between submitting your new Statement of Grounds and when you actually get your day in court?
2: It was long and torturous. The police kept making applications, they would lose their application, the claim would go ahead, they would then change their legal team and make the same applications again. It was like Groundhog Day. They completely ran us out of money and ultimately I was not able to retain my legal team and I ended up representing myself. I had to find people and bring them in who were willing to volunteer and well I mean you know that you were one of the people that that stepped in.
1: So you've no longer got your professional legal team, you've got volunteers and this is when you started to receive disclosure, and you received a huge quantity of disclosure. Can you talk about what it contained?
2: When we first brought the claim back in 2011, the main motivator for why we were bringing the claim was we wanted answers. Who was making the decisions when we went out for dinner was that my boyfriend inviting me out for dinner or was that something that he had been instructed to do by his commanding officer what did they write down what who else knew about the relationship so there were many 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 questions that we had and what we wanted was to see our files in February 2020 that is finally what I got It took nine years and by the time I got it I had no legal representation, there was no one else bringing the claim with me and I was told in the first instance that I wasn't allowed to show the documents that I was receiving to anyone else. I received thousands of pages. The police evidence file for my claim contained 10,000 pages. By the time we went to trial I had been given redacted versions of maybe half, a bit less than half of that, almost 5,000 pages of redacted documents from the time. Those documents included what are called the contact logs. Mark Kennedy had a handler, he had the same handler for seven years while he was undercover, and he would be phoning that handler, texting that handler, sometimes four or five times in an hour, multiple times throughout the day. Anybody who knew Mark will remember he was the original phone addict. He was always texting, he was always on his phone. Uh, It's quite normal nowadays, but at the time it was a little bit odd. And what he was doing was sending texts to his handler. He is known throughout the documents I received as EN31, and EN31 kept detailed records of the communications he had with mark and the meetings and discussions with their commanding officers there is also a log of the decisions made by the commanding officers it's a slightly more official document mark kennedy's handler's notes were basically his own notes made on a computer the log is a handwritten book with numbered pages in the way that police evidence is supposed to be kept and Also, Mark Kennedy's own notebooks, which was very, very disconcerting to be looking at these pages writing about us in a police notebook in my boyfriend's handwriting. So, those were kind of the day to day operational documents that I got I also got intelligence reports thousands of pages of intelligence reports that Mark submitted or Mark Handler submitted but also that were submitted by Marco Jacobs and Lynn Watson and Jim Boyling and Rod Richardson because they were all police officers that I came into contact with.
1: Along with all this disclosure the police were also making admissions.
2: We issued our claim to every paragraph police responded that it was admitted it was not admitted or it was denied so not admitted is like we're just trying to fudge it and denied is saying no we we say that this is not what happened and very early on they admitted all of the accusations relating to the sexual relationship and they said those wrongdoings were committed by Mark Kennedy. One set of police lawyers admitted that Mark Kennedy and his line managers and his handler knew about the relationship and were complicit in that wrongdoing. Uh, they then changed lawyers, and the lawyers actually said, "No, no, no, we take that back." Their pleadings that eventually went to court was that there was no wrongdoing by any of their employees other than Mark Kennedy and. Possibly his handler.
1: So it seems to me that admissions made are kind of worthless because the police took them back and did U-turns on them even while the case was taking place. Whereas the stuff that went to court has a ruling on it.
2: Quite early on, back in the civil court, it became clear that they had a tactic. Resist the claim completely, try to get it thrown out, delay it, obfuscate... Bully, and then when it's clear that none of that is going to work, make the most limited admissions in order to try and make it go away so that you don't have to disclose the evidence. And they did that on a number of occasions, and eventually one of the judges picked up on it and said, So, if I understand rightly what you are saying is, if we continue to insist that you disclose the evidence, you may make more admissions. If we don't, then the admissions that you made are where it will stand. At that point, they were kind of rumbled. When it became clear that they were going to have to make the disclosure, they decided that actually they shouldn't have admitted all the things that they'd admitted. It was already a long and complicated claim. And then they'd changed their pleadings, so some of the stuff they'd admitted they then took back. And there was a process... To establish the list of issues, the police were very keen to limit the list of issues. The parts about my political rights, so freedom of expression and freedom of association, and also the part about sexism and how the sexual relationships was a form of sexist discrimination against women and they didn't want those issues to be included in the claim for example they would say that nothing relating to sexual relationships with any other women was relevant to the issues or was relevant to the claim or the proportionality and lawfulness of the operations as a whole was not an issue but this is my claim i'm the person who is saying these this is what i'm making a claim about The court can look at the claim and the court can decide that I'm wrong. But the police can't decide these things do not get included in the trial because the police don't want to talk about them.
1: Proportionate's an expression that comes up a lot. The police saying it is not proportionate to deal with these things.
2: Proportionate is used a lot in the case and it's used in two contexts. So on the one hand, the police are trying to say it's not a proportionate use of the court's time and it's not a proportionate use of taxpayers' money for this claim to go ahead. The sexual relationship was such a grievous abuse of human rights that it's no longer important to look at the political rights, freedom of expression, freedom of association, the right to privacy, the right to family life.
1: Because we've admitted we killed the security guard, so we like we don't need to talk about robbing the bank.
2: So it's no longer a proportionate use of taxpayers' money to look at those issues. I don't think those things are insignificant.
1: But the other use of the term proportionate is in relation to their ability to justify the deployments in the first place as necessary and proportionate, based on the activities and behaviour of the people that they are targeting.
2: Yes, so these operations were, certainly after 2000, subject to authorisation. Law says that the operations have to be necessary and they have to be proportionate to the kinds of criminal activity that it is intended to prevent. The legitimacy and the lawfulness of those authorisations is one of the big issues that we ended up dealing with at the trial.
1: So it was proportionate to deploy Mark for seven plus years uh, at taxpayers' expense to infiltrate these movements. It was proportionate to duplicate much of what he was gaining by having other officers also deployed in similar movements. But it wasn't proportionate to go through all of the things that those undercover officers had produced and to redact and anonymise in order to supply you with the disclosure necessary to bring forward your case.
2: That was the police position, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, no, I disagree.
1: And uh, they were uh, ultimately forced to disclose?
2: There's a lot of questions that I still have about that process because they conducted what they called an evidential review. That yielded 10,000 pages of information. It's not entirely clear to me even now which pages I got to see and how many pages were ultimately kept from me. The court partially ruled in my favour on the disclosure issue, but not entirely.
1: So they fought over giving you stuff that you knew they had?
2: And that went on for a very long time.
1: But there was also evidence that was conspicuous in its absence.
2: There were gaps. The most conspicuous gap was the documents from the beginning of Mark's operation and from the beginning of my relationship with him were missing. So everything from July 2003 to February 2004 had gone. I'm sure that there were other, we weren't given all of the contact logs or all of the notebooks. We were only given the pages that referred to me and later we were also given pages that referred to other women who were witnesses in my case. One really significant moment for me was when they finally in October 2020 after more than three years admitted that five other undercover officers had breached my right to privacy. It came completely out of the blue. Up until that point, they had basically been denying that I had had any contact with those officers, that I had to justify why I was including them in my claim. But when it finally came to the point where they were forced to make disclosure, it turns out that Rod Richardson was inside my parents' home back in 1999, and they have reports of that, and that both Lynn Watson and Marco Jacobs were present at events where Mark and I were a couple so there was a lot of evidence that really didn't come out until the very last minute before we went to trial that made a very big difference to the case.
1: So we're talking now about the latter part of uh, 2020 and you're representing yourself at this point and you've got thousands of documents to read can you tell us about your preparation for trial, what the work entailed at that point?
2: It was probably the most intense work I have ever done in my life. Um, I'm not sure how effective a lot of that work was because I was in a total panic and I was learning a lot on the fly. The part of the case that I had to deal with on my own was to analyse thousands of pages of documents and work out what was missing and what else we needed in order to be able to make our case. Trying to understand the way that their record keeping worked, trying to guess what documents might exist that I wasn't seeing to explain to the tribunal why all these documents were important.
1: So in that case you're talking about documents that you haven't seen but you've also got stuff which you have been given. Uh, heavily redacted.
2: The process of trying to work out what we were reading wasn't just the redactions. We were getting the pages served in random order. The beginning of this page comes after the end of that page and trying to sort them out into chronological order. It's very difficult to interpret the document. The police didn't have people who were involved in creating those logs and creating those reports, telling them how the whole system worked and what people were reading. In that sense, we had a bit of an advantage because we did understand some of what we were reading. The places and the events that were being talked about, although it was very, very weird to be reading it in those terms... We went through all of the records of the operations that we were given and fed them into a chronology with keywords so that we were able to search it and look for stuff.
1: Well, you're talking about the the indexing. That, uh, That involved a lot of time, a lot of effort, but it generated a system whereby we could rapidly search the disclosure to answer a question about what officers met on a regular basis or what was taking place when a particular cryptic decision in the decision logs was uh, signed off on um,
2: yeah so the the index that we produced also brought in key stuff from our own experiences and our own memories of the events so it then became possible to match up my diaries with Mark's contact logs. One of the other difficulties that we faced was the ciphering. All police officers below a certain rank were given ciphers. Officers were O numbers and activists were also given ciphers and activists were A numbers.
1: Interestingly there was no... you were either an officer or you were an activist.
2: Mark reported on more than 500 different people. All of those people were redacted by the police as activists. That was just a reflection of the police's prejudiced view of the communities that they were spying on. So
1: 2020 obviously is significant for everyone because of the uh, Covid pandemic. How did Covid affect the case? the trial
2: it made it all very very complicated because the the hearings began to be cancelled there's a lot of work goes into preparing for those hearings and then if they don't happen there's behind the scenes stuff agreeing the orders that the court is going to make and and just setting the deadlines for when things need to happen and as a litigant in person i had to do all of that as well and it got very complicated with COVID. A lawyer who looked at the work that the police was doing described it as incompetence as a litigation strategy in the sense that everything happened late, everything was badly done, badly organised, you had to come back on everything and say this hasn't been done properly, this needs to be done again. So it was extremely exhausting. That got a lot worse with COVID. The police claim that all the secret documents that they were working on were held in a building that they could no longer access because of lockdown. I'm sure that they used it as another excuse.
1: By the time you got to the final hearings, you had a new legal team. How did that come about?
2: The sheer amount of evidence that we were trying to deal with was very intense. That it was a very important case, that it was a very complex case that I was going to struggle representing myself. And Charlotte Kilroy QC spoke to Freshfield Brookhouse Deringer, who are very large, largely corporate, I believe, law firm. They have a pro bono department and took the case, pro bono, in January of 2021. And they said, you need to seriously think about whether we can do this between now and April.
1: The alternative being with a new legal team to ask for a delay.
2: And I just couldn't face it. We were heading for the 10th anniversary of having filed the claim and the lawyers were just amazing. I was working all hours. I would send emails at 2 a.m. on Saturday night, Sunday morning, get a response within 10 minutes.
1: So the final hearing was in April, but you had a final pre-trial hearing in March, this time with uh, your new legal team. What was going on there?
2: The March hearing was about witness statements. The police had submitted witness statements by Sir Stephen House, who is, I believe, Deputy Commissioner to the Metropolitan Police. He is. Disgraced
1: ex-Scottish police. This was the guy who they hoped to palm you off with instead of disclosure.
2: So yeah, initially Sir Stephen House made a witness statement that was supposed to be an answer to all the factual questions so that they didn't have to disclose any of the documents to us. Having a police officer who has no background knowledge to the claim reading documents and writing about them, the police then said that he would not be presented for cross-examination on the basis that he had no first-hand experience of the facts and therefore there was no advantage to cross-examining him. His witness statements contained a lot of opinions, conjecture and inferences that he had drawn. Uh, They also said that they did not intend to cross-examine me or any of my witnesses. The hearing that happened in March was about those decisions by the police on the question of cross-examination. What came out of that was that if they were not going to cross-examine any of my witnesses, it was because they did not dispute any of the facts that we set out in our witness statements. That's particularly significant because it means that they did not dispute that Marco Jacobs had a relationship whilst undercover and that's something that they have been avoiding officially admitting up until now. They also accepted that the court should disregard all of the opinions and inferences expressed by Sir Stephen House in his witness statement. I believe what happened was Sir Stephen House made these witness statements. We were never supposed to see the documents. There would therefore have been no danger of embarrassment at cross-examination because we would have been cross-examining him blind about documents that only he had seen. Once we actually had access to the original documents that he had written his statement about, the danger of him being acutely embarrassed was high. I was very disappointed that we didn't get to cross-examine Sir Stephen House about some of the conclusions that he had drawn.
1: This pre-trial hearing basically established that there would be no uh, witnesses or cross, cross-examination cross at the main hearing and that everything that your witnesses had said was undisputed and that everything that Sir Stephen House said was all disregarded because you could not question him on the, on what he said, which was an interesting way to lead forward to the, the main hearing. We're going to pick up on the trial itself in the next podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Please do listen in to the next podcast where we talk about the IPT hearing itself and let your friends know about the Spycots Info podcast.
0: A couple of episodes ago, we asked people to review the podcast. And we're still something we'd really like people to do if they're able to. If you've got five minutes, if you could go on your podcast provider, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict or Podbeam or any of all these different platforms, whichever one you use, I'm not asking you to go out of your way. Please give us a five-star review. It really helps us being found places. We've had a few reviews so far. I have having read out.
3: Here for podcast gave five stars and said, a podcast about actual crime. Listen to this and inquire. Does your partner love you or is a police officer?
4: A bit weird that one. Not what we're trying to get (laughs) at.
3: Thanks
0: for the five stars,
3: dude. Les Vaz, five hundred gave five stars and said, "Spy cop do up, do the spy cop do up do do do, the spy cop do up do 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 do, the spy cops are spies with their eyes on the prize, do the spy cop do up, oh yeah."
4: I'm not sure what to say about that one, to be honest.
0: Well, you call the previous one a bit weird. That's I mean, uh, yeah, I kind of like, <laughs> I
4: should have waited until I heard that one.
0: We don't really cover do up. Certainly the music we use isn't do up.
4: We'd really like to like have clips of mu- of music, depending on what year we're talking about, but due to like hideous amount of copyright money, we would have to pay that isn't possible. You just so you just have to imagine when we're talking about 1968, you have to you think in your mind that you're hearing like all along the watchtower by Jimi Hendrix or something.
0: Also, I mean the editing, which is currently kind of appears to fall to me at the moment, is uh, an absolute nightmare, and adding music in on the top, I think, would make my brain explode. But if we did, I don't know if we'd do any do wop Sorry about that.
3: Ted Burglar gave five stars and said, great podcast, really intricate content, important listening for everyone. If you're interested in British politics, you need this in your life.
4: Yeah, I think it like under, like slightly undermines a <laughs> great review by calling himself Ted Burglar.
3: I, I get the impression it's a
0: foreign one. Um, I, yeah, hopefully, you know, it is an understanding of, of British politics, perhaps to an international audience.
3: Mike R. Brown gave five stars and said, brilliant, a really good listen and very informative.
4: Sean, to this point.
0: I know Mike. I think I might have convinced him to write that review in the pub one day.
3: Interactionist gave five stars and said, must listen. No one knows about this stuff and it's awful. Thanks so much to the people who put this together and to the spy cops victims for the struggle. Keep on keeping on. Support is out here.
4: Good, good. That's nice, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Fair play. We often feel like nobody knows about this stuff, and it is awful, and I think partially because it's so awful, people don't want to think about it too much.
3: Luke and Gates had gave five stars and had said, essential listening. I'll get the stuff covered by other reviewers out of the way quickly. This pod is impeccably researched, clearly explained, and politically vital. The hosts and their guests reveal stuff that anyone fighting oppression needs to know, and they're heroes of the class for all the work they're doing to dig down further into the swamp of state surveillance and abuse. It's also a blooming good, good podcast, the kind of thing you that would have been great radio if it came out in another era. It'd be easy and forgivable for this to be an earnest and depressing listen that made you want to look over your shoulder whenever you organize instead it overflows with the joys, sadness, and ironies of lives spent fighting for what you believe in, despite persecution of recognising your enemy as powerful yet preposterous and of loving your comrades and your movements without blinkers as to their faults. It's one of the most beautifully human podcasts I've come across, a paying to solidarity, dignity and the strength of spirit even in the darkness. Thank you guys so much.
4: See, that was the best one. All right. Just to assure people that Luke from Gateshead is not either of me or Tom's mum.
0: I was really touched by this review, man. It may be a bit much. I don't. I mean, like, thank you very much, and I, I re, I'm really pleased we get that reaction from people. Um, certainly, what we intend to do is is what you like, kind of suggest we do do. So uh, that that's fantastic, and that really that kind of review makes us want to do it more, even though we have no funding.
4: <laughs> as well as like, give us written reviews on wherever you get your podcast, which is obviously the ideal thing to do. Is if you feel inspired, maybe you could record a review yourself, a spoken review obviously glowing ones, and then send them to us and we can use those. And we can have like a montage of like positive things about the podcast.
0: Go offline and tell your friends to listen to us
4: was well, that obviously yeah yeah
0: all these things if you'd like some stickers um to like promote the, the podcast you can contact us and we'll send you some there's a link which i'll put in the show notes but also is like on everything else at Spike Up's the info and everywhere else that we we pop up on social media for for three quid we'll send like a hundred gram second class envelope stuffed full which is depending on the size they end up being because it's all a bit random i'm printed by trade so i'm doing it on you know, you get like about 50 to 80, depending. We might get to a few different designs. There's only one at the moment. And yeah, you can donate more than three quid. That really, really helps support us. Like I say, we have no financial backers. Um, though we are really grateful to the campaign opposing police surveillance for giving us the initial money to be able to buy microphones and to host. And we're also really thankful to Le Pub, which allow us to use Le Hub, the studio in the basement, uh, where we are right now recording this episode the pub is a community co-op public house and art space live music venue and lots of other things they do great food they do great vegan food here in newport
4: Um, recommend the garlic chips especially
0: thanks for for listening um please like share subscribe most of all please give us a review you know get in touch get us get some stickers and 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 please help us this podcast to grow we have like grown quite a lot from when we first started we're getting you know 600 listeners per episode pretty quickly after each one comes out, but we'd like to grow even more. So if you can help us be part of that, that'd be, that'd be fantastic. Check out spycops.info for all the previous episodes and anything else you might want to know on this topic.
4: Thanks for listening.